All right. Morning, everyone. I'm Heath. I'm one of the elders here at Antioch, Orlando. It's my privilege this morning to lead us in the worship through the Word. Uh, John is in California for a few more weeks. He's getting some much-needed rest, followed by some time at school. So please be praying for the Curiales. I know Nicole wasn't feeling too well yesterday. Um, And be praying that they would be able to come back fully rested and refreshed. So next five Sundays, we will be taking a break from our series in Mark, and we'll be going through the five relational resolves of grace, hunger, humility, honor, and joy. We call these relational resolves because as followers of Jesus Christ, these are the ways we resolve to live in relationship to one another. They are resolves because as fallen people who are being sanctified by a relationship with Jesus, we must choose to walk in each one of these. And each time we fall short, we confess our shortcomings and get back up and choose to walk in them again. This morning, we will be looking at grace. And next week, Eric will lead us as we look at hunger. So grace is something that we hear about often. It's easy to quote scripture and theologians about it to sing songs about it, and to talk about it in our personal lives. It's even on the back of our mission uh, trip shirts from this last week. And it's right that it's mentioned so much, uh, for it's at the very center of our our faith. Yet with this frequent mention of grace comes a danger that we would become so familiar with it that we forget what it really is and what it means. Grace means an undeserved gift or favor. It is different from mercy in that mercy is withholding something that we deserve. Grace is both covering, meaning forgiveness for what we have done, and empowering, meaning it gives us the ability to live according to God's standards. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be, will be able to endure it. These verses reassure us, that God gives us grace through his help to live our lives according to the standard he's called us to live. One last point before getting into the main points. Grace is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Paul says three times in Romans 6 that we should not continue in sin, although God's grace does cover it each time. Uh, Jude is even more convicting regarding this in verse 4 says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for, con- for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Grace changes our hearts to, do, to want to do the right things. So if we are thinking about committing sin and have the thought that it will be okay because God's grace covers it, This should be a warning to us. It's not an excuse, but an empowerment to do the right thing, and and it's covering for when we fail to do that, which all of us do, and we will until Jesus comes back. Now that we have defined what grace is 
and what it is not, we will look at God's grace towards us, and then as a result of that, the grace that we should have for one another. Let's turn to Ephesians 1. We'll be reading from verse 3 through the end of chapter 2. Right, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him, for an an administration of the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who have first hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance and to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith which is, which, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the full knowledge of him, so that you, the eyes of your heart having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of of his inheritance in the saints." And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of the might of his strength, which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also formerly conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and the mind, And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore, remember that you formerly, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might create the two into one new man, making peace, and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. And he came and preached the good news of peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being joined together, is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This is a very rich passage on God's grace. Um, Here are some implications of what it means to be under God's grace. And I'll be listing them, but uh, this list is all taken pretty much word for word from the Scripture. So if you miss one, you can go back to the Scripture. Before God's grace, we were and would be still if God had not given us grace to believe these things. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were actively doing the things of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the mind. We were children of wrath. We had no hope. We were without God. We were far off. We were at enmity toward the law. And we were strangers and sojourners. But now that God's grace has been revealed towards those who are in Christ Jesus, it means that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that God has chosen us in Christ to be holy and blameless before the earth was formed. God has adopted us as sons. We have a redemption through Jesus' blood. We have the forgiveness of our transgressions. God has caused the riches of his grace to abound to us in wisdom and insight. God has made known to us the mystery of his will. We have been made an inheritance to God. 
we who have hoped in Christ will be for the praise of his glory. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The eyes of our heart have been enlightened. All things, both in heaven and on earth, are in subjection to, to Jesus. We have been made alive in Christ. God has raised us up with Christ. God has seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. We are Christ's workmanship. We were created for good works. We have been brought near. Christ is our peace. We have access to the Father. We are of God's household. We are citizens with the saints. And we are being built together into a dwelling of God. Now these are just a few implications from just one passage of what it means for God to pour out his grace on us. The Bible is filled with this message of grace towards those who believe in Jesus. Some other passages to meditate on God's grace are Psalm 51, Isaiah 53, Psalm 103, Psalm 32, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans chapters 6 through 8, and 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 12. And I would encourage you all to read these passages this week. God has richly blessed us with so many things when we deserve his eternal wrath and punishment. It's truly a debt that we could never repay, which leads us to our next point, how God's grace towards us should influence the way we show grace towards one another. Turn to Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Matthew eighteen twenty one. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment be made. Therefore the slave fell to the ground and was prostrating himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And feeling compassion, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and was pleading with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what, what had happened... They were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, 
I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your hearts. Now in this story, Jesus gives an gives us an illustration of how ridiculous it is for us to hold on to unforgiveness to another person when God has forgiven us so much. The first man owed about seven and a half billion dollars in today's money. That's B, billion with a B. Um, it's extremely difficult for us to wrap our minds around this, so here's some examples uh, to get some perspective. It's roughly the amount of the state debt of Delaware or the national debt of Kyrgyzstan. We're talking about debt that's on a national level. He would have never paid it off and would have died in prison. The second man owed him about $20,000. Uh, it's still a lot of money, but it's definitely pay- doable to pay it off. Uh, we have been forgiven so much. and We are like the first man, only instead of merely forgiving our debt, God has also forgiven us, and he has given us an inheritance as one of his own family members. Jesus has given us a clean slate before God. And when we realize how much we really have been forgiven, and that we have been giving everything, we have been given everything pertaining to God, life and godliness, as it says in 2 Peter 1.3, this should empower us to forgive any wrong done against us. Yet how often do we hold on to offenses against uh, us, or offenses against other people for the way that they have hurt us? We forget what God has done for us, despite the warnings Scripture gives for acting in this way. 1 John 2, 9 through 11 says, The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. There is one who loves The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness blinded his eyes. 1 John 3, 11-16 says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The one who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we have known love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, these passages all give warnings that we must love our brothers and sisters if we truly are of God. This begs the question of what is the definition of love? 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 gives us that definition. It says, Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, it does not brag, is not puffed up, it does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, It is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, 
It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Most of this is pretty self-explanatory. We are to be patient with one another. We are to be kind to one another. We are not to be jealous of anyone else. We do not brag about our accomplishments or our giftings. We do not allow pride to make us think that we're something special. We do not become easily angered. We do not look out for our own interests, like it says in Philippians 2, verse 4. We are not easily provoked by our brothers and sisters. We do not call into memory how someone has hurt us in the past. We do not rejoice in unrighteousness, yet we do rejoice with the truth. We bear all things in regard to our brothers and sisters. We believe the best about them. We hope all things for them. We endure all things in our relationships. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 also says some of the same things. It says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling of which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If keeping these attitudes towards others seems very difficult, it is because it's actually impossible to treat one another like this all the way or all the time in our own strength. We need a transformed heart and the power of the Holy Spirit to live these out. This is why in most of Paul's letters, he starts with the gospel and how God's grace and mercy has been poured out on us. And then that flows into how we should live because our actions flow out of our new character in Christ. Here are a few examples from Scripture. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Galatians 5.22-25 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in step with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit not only helps us to live a holy life and empowering us not to sin, He also helps us in our weakness. Romans 8.26 says, And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10 says, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, and hardships, for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. All right, we'll be closing soon, so the band can go ahead and come up. But I am so thankful these verses are in Scripture. 
I'm actually naturally shy. Uh, some of you know that. But uh, I tend to avoid going up to people who I don't know when I rely on my own strength. And this presents a problem, especially with evangelism. I don't want to go talk to someone who I haven't met. Um, I want them to know Jesus. I want their lives to be transformed, but I don't want to meet them until, they, until we're already friends. Um, yet, over and over again, when I trust in God and I pray for strength and boldness and believe that he will give me strength, I am able to initiate conversation. And sometimes the conversation actually goes really well. Uh, God will give us strength to do what he has called us to do. And his glory and his power are perfected in weakness. I was even reminded of this while preparing for this Sunday. As most of you know, um, like John was not feeling very well while we were in San Francisco. Yet God gave him the ability to preach nearly every day. And he proved to be an example of what it means to press in and to let God work in weakness, which I need reminded of often. Yeah, and I, I was one of those that was sick and am now recovering, so it was very personal this week. Um, our weakness is not a limitation to God. His grace enables us to live our daily lives in the midst of our weakness. We rarely call to mind that it is, it is his grace that enables us to be good employees and to work our jobs with excellence. It enables us to love our spouse and respond in kindness instead of anger to our children. It's what enables us to abide by the laws of our city and of our country and to be honest in how we deal with money. It's his grace that gives us hope in the midst of uh, many trials and disappointments in life. And I'll share one last example of grace from my own life. A few years ago, I was struggling with the same sin over and over and over again. I hated that I was stuck in this pattern, and others knew that I had been struggling with it. John was getting ready to preach, and I had asked a few of us to pray over him before he started. In that moment, I was convicted of my sin and felt as if my prayers would be hindered as I had sinned earlier that day, and so I confessed that I had sinned again. I expected a rebuke or a call to holiness. What happened instead rocked my world. John started to pray for me and started to war for me in prayer, calling out the good things in my life and the evidence of salvation, things from the list of, from Ephesians that we looked at earlier. In that moment, I experienced empowering grace because before then, I didn't want to sin, but my motivations were out of fear. And yet, after that, I was motivated by love. Love for God, love for myself, love for the church that I was a part of. Now, the sin did not stop right away. It took placing fences in my life to make it harder to commit the sin, and it took ruthless confession of tempting thoughts whenever they would come in. But over time, it did get better, and that particular sin lost power it once had in my life. This is the power of grace at work. When I expected the law and judgment, I received mercy and acceptance, which changed my heart. This is the power of the cross and what each of us are called to both receive and to give. 
Now, if you're here this morning and have never accepted God's grace through following Jesus as your Lord, please talk to someone and ask them what it means to follow Jesus. If you're having trouble accepting that God's grace is enough for you, find someone to pray for you because God's grace is enough. It covers everything that we've done wrong. And if you are in a place where you're resting in God's grace, rejoice in what God has given you. And then share his grace with others. Now let's respond.